Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Making Action Happen. I'm Sarah Blackhurst. And I'm Brian McCain. We are excited today. You know, if you've been listening for the last little bit, we've had all these candidates on. Of course, it's an election year, and we're excited to have yet another Action 22 member who is running for office, running for the very important seat of CD3 in Colorado. Um, Adam Frisch is joining us today. Good afternoon, Sarah and Brian. Honored to be here. (laughs) Well, thank you for coming. So. Of course. Um, Adam and I have not known each other for very long. We've talked on the phone several times, but um, I moderated a forum for the, that he was in back a couple months ago now, hasn't it yeah, been? Yeah, exactly. So that's the only way we've gotten to know each yeah. other. No, it's great um, to get And the l- last little bit, but you've been traveling around and doing all kinds of stuff. This is a, this is a tough district. And for the, our listeners who don't know, will you lay out the geographic size uh, we have uh, Colorado District 3 is 54,000 miles square, uh, larger than the state of Mississippi, mm-hmm. larger than England or, or Ireland. It's it's huge. It's one of the largest <laughs> districts, without a doubt, in the country. I know Alaska's single uh, district. You know, there's only a few states that actually have fewer uh, Congress people than senators, right? And Wyoming's one of them, and Alaska's one of them. So, uh, you know, Colorado's getting an eighth. Uh, but CD3 is, you know, proudly independent, um, and that's super really important. You know, as we, you know, I kind of start the district having that conversation that starts in Pueblo in my mind, kind of works its way down south to the border, picks up about, I think, about four-fifths of the New Mexico border. Yeah. We've picked up a little bit of uh, east as well now after losing route up in um, Steamboat. and goes all the way along the Four Corners, 100% of that Utah border, and picks up about a third or a fourth of the Wyoming border. So to, for perspective, the only congressional district in the country that is bigger than CD3 geographically is in Alaska. Is it really? I think so. And as somebody that spent 10 years driving all over that <laughs> district, I would yeah. always joke that during winter months, I could drive to the Gulf of Mexico faster than I could drive to yeah. Grand Junction from Pueblo. I hear you. No, it, it's it's spread out, and there, there's uh, some commonalities about some things. There's obviously some geographical differences. About it, I, I know Pueblo uh, bristles a little bit about being put in this rural bucket, which the majority of the district is, and you know, proudly blue collar, proudly working class. Um, I was down here seven or eight or nine times during the primary. I won, I think, because I put eight thousand some miles uh, on the road. And uh, as I mentioned before, we put together this. We took our old family camper trailer. It was a 19-foot thing. We turned it into the Beat Bobart buggy. Um, <laughs> and uh, we, we drove around um, a huge part of the district. And those last six days of the campaign in the primary, uh, my son and a couple of his friends, we drove, uh, we went to 54 towns in six days and 1,900 miles. Nucla, Dove Creek, uh, we were in places that candidates haven't been into in probably a generation. But while it's very big, uh, I'm going to argue, and you know, it is the prettiest district of the 435 by far. The plains, the mountains, the rivers, the valleys—it's gorgeous. Uh, we agree with you on on yes. that one for it, sure. It, except for I, 
I do not like the I-70 corridor. That's the one that I um, always avoid driving, you know, yeah. Highway 50. I think my favorite way to get to the Western Slope from Pueblo is Highway 50. Yeah, just, it's beautiful. Going west. That, that's my favorite. I-70, um, you know, I, I think on average it's shut down more than it's open during the year. Yeah. And it, it just seemed to get stuck. And then, you know, it's just like a straight line. But Highway 50, man, that's like the best drive in the country, I think. Oh, I like the highway. I agree with you, but I like um, nine. Yeah, when you when, when I have to come from through Bonavista to come down into Pueblo, that's one of the busy, that's one of the most beautiful roads as well. Oh, I yeah. love. And then that Cortez way. up the Ridgeway yeah. is also yeah. some of the most beautiful. Oh yeah, to Agreed. be done in a car or a jeep Agreed. or a motorcycle or a, or a bicycle. Agreed. Agreed. And we know that well. We've done, but Brian and I have both done those trips where it's so many in so many days, and mm-hmm. you know, like. 1800 miles in 18 hours and yeah yeah we've done we've done that um with stops all along the way um so here's here's one of the things we we often hear from people who are not who are outlanders um is that uh you know one issue like you've seen one rural issue you've seen them all what do you think no i mean i think you know i think regardless of um the Nuclas or the Dove Creeks to the Aspens or the Telluride, people want to live in a small town and know their community members. And I think that's something that's universal within this district. Even in Grand Junction and Pueblo are two large communities. I still view, when I'm talking to people, they view like they live in a small town, if you will, a little mm-hmm. bit, that uh, everyone knows each other well. And, you know, I think there's some common issues that affect the West. Um, obviously, water is, is affecting every single square mile, mm-hmm. every single community of this um, of this district. And I think that's something really, really important to try to figure that out as well. Obviously, the San Luis Valley is having a little bit of different water issues than those in Grand Junction or up in Moffitt, but it's a lot of the same conversations, which is just that we need more water and we need to protect the water that we do have. Um, and so I think there's some commonalities about it, but, you know, some places are more ag and some people are more ranching and, and, you know, we have a couple, you know, resort communities as well, but everyone relies on water. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's something that's super important for everybody. So why did you decide to run? What motivated you? Um, the, the tipping point was when, uh, representative Bobart and, uh, her co-leader, Marjorie Taylor Green of the angertainment industry stood up and started yelling and screaming at a president of the United States, not just President Biden, but anyone who stands up and screams and yells at, at any president, let alone when he was talking about his son. Um, that was kind of the tipping point. I had spent October, November looking at this race, and uh, Bobart said something horrible, bigoted, um, unfocused about the district. And I, I pulled out some numbers and i use a lot of numbers from 2020 and i saw that while marjorie taylor green received 75 percent of the vote in 2020 and paul goser and andy biggs and jim jordan and matt gates all had between 65 and 75 percent of the vote in 2020 i saw that lauren bobert only got 51 percent of the vote and of all these um extremists and there's some i have some issues with some of the extremists and policies on the left side as well mm-hmm. um she was the only one that is actually electorally weak uh, and I looked at those numbers and saw that if 5% of the people would have voted differently in 2020, Bobart would have lost. I think, um, so my view was someone needed to get about 10% of her prior voters to switch now because of the redistricting. And my assumption was if a moderate, pro-energy, pro-business Democrat could get by the primary, which would not be easy, especially, you know, being a 
middle-aged, white, straight, successful male, let alone from a resort community, let alone from Aspen, Colorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not from there, but I've lived there for the past 20 years. Um, if I could get by that, I could build what I'm focused on now, which is this bipartisan pro-normal party coalition. And I think a lot of people uh, in the district especially kind of want the circus to stop and they want mm-hmm. someone to focus on their issues. And I truly believe a lot of those issues that we all face are nonpartisan. And I'm a little naive. I'm not completely naive. But when I think it comes to a lot of ag issues, when I think it comes to a lot of ranching issues and land protection and water protection uh, and this this focus on independence uh, and accountability, I truly believe that it's more about who's going to focus on the job, one, take it seriously, and realizing uh, this is not just a, a place to audition for a future television show uh, hosts. It is truly about, you know, who do you want in those subcommittee subcommittee meetings mm-hmm. and those committee meetings uh, negotiating and, and fighting for you and your family, your kids and your grandkids and your community and your business. Yeah. Um, and I think that is what, and I, I, I and a lot of other people, even those that had voted for her before, mm-hmm. I don't th- I think a lot of people feel very disappointed that someone's Lauren Boebert is not taking the job seriously and not focused on the job. So we are constantly hearing about, there's four issues that we're, that our members are constantly talking about. One of them is water. I'm going to ask you a really tough water question in just a second. I'm pro water. Just for the record. I'm pro water. So, um, I'm anti water. We're anti water. Yeah. Pro beer, anti water. Right. Um, so, um, water is one of them. Um, public safety. We're hearing about this constantly. Um, uh, our economy, inflation, Colorado's like what number one? Uh, where Colorado is impacted Colorado. by inflation, we're like one of the two highest states. So yeah. we're one of the two highest states. So inflation, um, of course, education, um, and then um, I, so yeah, water, education, um, oh, energy, public safety, and energy. Yeah, those are the three. Those are the four big ones that we talk about all the time. Okay, so let's talk about um, let's talk about inflation. Yep. Let's talk about, you know, how do we get through this? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I've said this before, the, the White House and the Federal Reserve, um, you know, they blew it at the end of the day. Uh, there was this conversation of transitory. It was used a lot, which in English terms was this is going to last a, a couple months and then come down, and it certainly didn't. I uh, spent 10 years in New York City traveling the world and was super involved in global interest rates for a while. Um, so I have a pretty good grasp of kind of what makes the economy tick and where the supply chains run into problems and that. And obviously there was this huge lockdown during COVID um, and that service part of the economy pretty much shut down. And so people started just buying a lot of stuff uh, at the same time, China shut down and the supply chain shut down and all those containers that you see all over the world, they went up by five or 10 X. Uh, they became five or ten times more expensive to ship from Asia over here. And this is, it just goes to show how important it is to try to produce as much as we can domestically. We, and I'm a big believer in fair trade, and we need to have other people besides the United States companies producing things or having things produced here. My wife runs a manufacturing business um, that, her, that her father started that she runs. So we understand what it's like to actually manufacture onshore. It's not easy, but it's really, really important. Mm-hmm. And so I think as soon as COVID opened, as soon as COVID restrictions opened up, thank goodness, longer than it should have taken, but it did, uh, there was obviously huge demand to buy at the same time that the federal government put a tremendous amount of money in there. And I think some of those first um, stimulus, stimulate, stimulus packages were good. 
um, I talked about in my campaign, even in the Democratic primary, was I am a big believer uh, in joining the Promise Solvers Caucus. It's my number one goal that I want to do when I get to Congress. And that Promise Solvers Caucus is made up of 29 Dems and 29 Republicans. Oh, love it. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, there's not one in the Senate, but this is kind of the... This is where Joe Manchin and some of these other people have come from. They're more moderate, and they just want to get stuff done. While, you know, to me, the caucus should be filled up with 435 people because if you're not there solving problems, what are you really doing? Um, and I, I, when I get in there, I'll have to find a Republican, and I will find one, and I'll go there and try to figure out how to do stuff. And that Problem Solvers Caucus brought us the first bipartisan infrastructure bill from a couple of years ago and it brought us, brought us the first COVID relief package. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was probably in hindsight, that was more than enough to probably balance the economic loss we saw during the COVID shutdown with the stimulus that came from the government. Those, excuse me, those futures, those future stimulus packages, that all that was just, was excess money and you have too much money chasing too few goods. And that's the definition of what inflation is. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be hard to do. I mean, it, it's mostly a fiscal conversation uh, with what happens in the White House and Congress. And then you have this monetary conversation, which is a fancy word of saying where interest rates are. And, and the Federal Reserve is obviously hiking interest rates and they're not going to be they're not going to stop. They're going to keep on going up. And that's why we're seeing student loan go up. That's why we're seeing mortgage mortgage prices go up. And that's it's going to be a challenge. And hopefully we can just get more of the supply chain opened up. And the, the supply back in there that hopefully should have some help on inflation, but it's killing everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you said, especially in Colorado, housing prices, credit card debt, uh, student loan, universities, or even small community colleges as well. It's not just these kind of the four-year colleges that are where education is really hitting people. Um, and I think it's, it's hitting everyone really, really hard. And so I think, again, focusing on it, being willing to talk about it and trying to figure out a way to get those supply chains opened up. And making sure that any investments that comes out of D.C. is very, very thoughtful and doesn't increase uh, inflation. Now, it is coming down. I think gas was as high as five bucks. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think as I just drove in here, I saw it at 362. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's about a 25, 23 percent drop uh, of the high point of gas prices. They need to come down more. And as we all know, we drive a lot more miles than any the vast majority of people in the country Mm -hmm. and including the state as well. And it's good that those are coming down now because school just started. Yeah. And I have to go to four or three different schools to take yeah. kids. So it's tough. Um, so when it comes to public safety, uh, we uh, most of our candidates on here are either local or state. So that's a different yeah. handled different than the federal side of it. But uh, one thing that I've worked on in the past uh, that, that can impact this is uh, federal resources for, say, the HIDA program, which is the high-something drag, uh, high-intensity drug trafficking areas, which is some federal funds that come down and assist local law enforcement. I think that is a program that absolutely works. And today in the chief dinner yesterday, they had an article about how they busted a a gang drug distribution and murder ring here in Pueblo. And it it really impacted the crime on the streets. Um, What are some thoughts and ideas from a federal standpoint, how you can bring that down? Because fentanyl is, I think the worst in Colorado out of any other state and also cocaine use in Colorado. Yeah. And all of this is trafficked from, it's not made here. It yeah. comes in here. No, and I think one of the unintended consequences of the legalization of marijuana, which I I was supportive of and I'm supportive of, but I think there's something that a lot of people missed in Colorado was, you know, and the theory was if you legalized it and taxed it and regulated, the product would be safer. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there'd be a lot less violence coming over the border, especially what happened mostly from Mexico. Um, and it'd, it'd be a lot safer and there'd be some tax revenue that could go into other community goods. What I think a lot of people underestimated was the illegal marijuana had an infrastructure in place of supply from the cartels. Mm-hmm. Right. And the cartels haven't left. They've just shifted what they're dealing. And so they've given up on marijuana, which most people would view as pretty benign if it's mm-hmm. used properly, medical as well as recreation. And all of a sudden you're seeing some really hard stuff come in here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this opiate crisis of a couple of years ago that was really kind of the Appalachian, everything else like that. It's also mm-hmm. affecting rural parts of the West as well. Yeah. And I think that loss of um, marijuana in the cartel business, which is a positive, unfortunately, it's been filled up. Um, with something else that is a lot worse and destructive. Mm-hmm. And so while it's a lot of it is petty crime and things like that that's happening, um, I know Pueblo and, and Grand Junction, some of these bigger cities are running into some other problems, but talking to people in some of our 2,000-person towns, you know, that are an hour away from a lot of places are starting to see um, the effects of this, and it's yeah. not good. And I think we got to figure out that unintended consequences of what else can we do to kind of buck that up. Because it's not only is it the crime, but the underlying crime is that that a lot of this is affecting teenagers and kids, and it's getting younger and younger. And as someone who has a 15-year-old daughter and a 16-year-old son, it certainly hits home about what's happening there. Yeah, and and like I said, policy-wise, this is more of a state and local issue, but federally, this is a – it's money. It's a support issue, like adding those resources to the local communities where you have rural towns and counties in Colorado that have – maybe not even a, a sheriff's officer on duty between one and six in the morning. And that's when this happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so I appreciate that. Um, also with that, you know, you, you mentioned something about the cartel where they thought that this would impact the cartel business. Um, again, another project I worked on for years. Um, you're right. The cartel just shifted. In fact, their yeah. largest moneymaker now is human trafficking. Yeah. It's not even drugs. I think drugs is like number three. Um, there was a point where avocado theft and distribution was like higher than drugs yeah. in, in this and oil. But that that's an important fact that people don't realize. It didn't make the problem go away. The cartel are great business people. They know how yeah. to make money. They care about money and they'll make money however they can. And with those federal resources, you know, we can kind of chip back on that a bit in our state. Yeah, no, I mean, I think there's a way to be fiscally responsible and fiscally conservative, which I am. But at the same time, it's important for dollars to come back to our district. Uh, and we should not be embarrassed or shy about doing that. And I think that's really, really important. Um, I mean, the, the the representative is there to represent the 700 and some thousand people that every district has about 700,000 people, yeah. plus or minus some. And their job is to go there uh, and fight for the values and, and fight for resources to come back, mm-hmm. whether it's infrastructure or, or health. I mean, I've talked about this rural health access and getting try to get those federal dollars in at the county health department level. Uh, usually the vast majority of our county health departments are professionally, sophisticatedly staffed, but they know the boots on the ground situation that is going on with the physical as well as the mental health, which leads into the drug use and everything else like that. And, you know, I would, with all due respect to the state health department, I think it's better for that fed money to show up in these counties. Yep. Yeah. Um, and, and that's where it should be invested because those people understand the boots on the ground, those men and the women that are helping and so, you know, I th- I'm, I, I'm proud to fight for every dollar I can get for this district. And that's what everyone should be doing. So that leads into a great question that I have and a concern that we've had. Um, earmarks are back. Uh, our congressionally designated funding, I think they're called now. They are. Um, I never had the pleasure of working for Congress or the Senate when we had earmarks. I would have loved that. 
because there's so much opportunity to take this money and truly impact your district with it. Right now, the uh, policy of the Republicans is basically we're not going to do this. And there's some concerns, and I agree with it to a bit, you know, over transparency or funding, what do they used to call it, pork spending or whatever. But um, if and when you get elected, will you partake in the earmark process for the district? Yeah, I would say this. When I get elected, I don't care what the process is called, but getting money from Washington, D.C. into this district is, you know, pretty much uh, number one importance. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really, really important to make sure that the money comes for health, comes from education. You know, we don't we can run our own health needs. We can run our, what, how what should be taught and everything else at a local control. But we need funds to do that. You know, we have some of the poorest uh, counties. Uh, in this in the district in the state some of the most rural in the entire country and we need funds to do that mm-hmm. to make sure that people can do the ranching and do their farming and, and have their small businesses and i think that's really really important we're not going to have huge amounts of of manufacturing in a lot of these places uh it'd be great to get some of it as well but at the end of the day it's a rural community uh and it'd be great to see some money come into the pueblos and the grand junctions of the world where there is some good manufacturing and needs to happen and production and true blue collar jobs whether the unionized or not um i'm proud to be supported by the unions i think that's really important i that was not my path to victory in the primary to earn a lot of those um those endorsements but i'm, I'm happy to have those i think it's important to pe- have people to have really solid jobs and wages one of the things I think that's missing, you know, there's this national 3.5% unemployment rate, which is really low. But when I was up in uh, Rio Blanca County at the Club 20, um, your friend's up there at a policy meeting, uh, I met a gentleman working in one of the hotels who is a uh, uh, an engineer. And, you know, he's I think he was probably making 17 or $18 an hour. Well, he was doing the exact same engineering work in one of the fields and was paid $61 an hour. And at $61 an hour, that's $115,000, $120,000 a yeah. year. That's a real career. That's a real job. That's a real safety net for Bubba to raise your kids and have a little fun and do some vacation stuff and have a couple of toys here and there. Um, and, you know, so I think it's not just that the unemployment rate is low. It's the quality of the paycheck. Um, so let me ask you, you know, there's a lot of um, the uh, congressionally um, directed spending and appropriations get lumped into the same thing. They're not the same thing, are they? No, no, no. I mean, I think it's important that there are programs that every state and every district is going to get a hold of. Mm-hmm. But you, I would hope, again, one of the top one or two jobs there is for every representative mm-hmm. to be advocating on behalf of the men and the women and the families and the businesses um, of their district. Uh, and when that money is being put around, it should come here. Um, and, you know, we have a classic case. Uh, Lauren Bobart's not the only one, but she voted against a tremendous amount of stuff, millions and millions of dollars for water infrastructure storage, mm-hmm. millions of dollars for rural education, millions of dollars for veterans. She voted against him, and then she comes home and sends out postcards of all these things that she's proud of and would show up at the ribbon cutting, even though she voted against him. And I think uh, some people notice that. Some people don't. But I'm proudly going there to try to figure out how to advocate for this district and bring home the money that's needed. And I don't really care what it's called. I believe in the transparency of it. That's really, really important, number one. Uh, and I'm, I'll, everything I come back, um, I'll be very proud to say publicly what it's for. Mm-hmm. Uh, I appreciate there was this bridge to nowhere that people talked about you know, 20, 30 years ago in Alaska. But I think it's important to make sure that money, as much money comes back to this district as possible. I, I can't see anyone who drives around this district and says, you know, we couldn't use a little bit more money in the hands of our well-thought-out local officers, public officials, civic leaders, business leaders, and they would know how to put the money to 
work better than the feds, but the money needs to come out of there. Yeah, yeah. and for the record, it's completely transparent now. You can't yeah. hide it. You can't just go support right. your friends. Yeah, you know, like, hey, uh, Sarah, you want to build a warehouse? Let me write this check Absolutely. from the government. Um, so, veterans, uh, veterans. We have a high veteran population here in Pueblo and the district. Yeah. And a lot of this is the the rural veteran that just kind of wants to get to get away, you know, live on their own, do their thing. But some of our VA healthcare is the worst in these rural districts. And there was the air commission recommendations that came up to close all these rural clinics in the action 22 area in Colorado. Luckily that got put on hold. It's not going away. Um, this is on the Senate side. They have to confirm their commission and then they vote on the recommendations. They didn't confirm their commission. So it's, basically on hold for a couple of years and then we'll go through this cycle again. But um, the VA needs to be held accountable for our rural citizens, our rural veterans of Colorado. Uh, the The director of this side of the mountain, um, Mr. Kilmer, he's doing a great job. He's doing everything he can to get out there to the rural parts, but it's tough for him. And a lot of this, again, federally, it comes down to funding. Um, thankfully, the PACT Act was passed. Um, yep. that's the burn pit legislation, yep. um, which I, I think that some people here in Colorado voted against. Yeah. Uh, um, that that's huge because being a veteran myself, like I slept next to one of those things for almost a year Yeah, and every time I cough or my head hurts, I freak out, you know, not knowing what's happening, but will you support the VA's mission to not only fund rural access to VA healthcare, but also kind of fix the VA because as one of the largest government organizations out there, they have a lot of problems and they're, they're too focused on Denver or the big cities and not focused on Pueblo or Lamar, um, you know, Trinidad, these areas. Uh, so what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, we've had this discussion before, Brian, but thank you for, you know, I, I know it gets a little pedantic a little bit, but I do say thank you for your service. It's tough out there. You know, I think there is, you know, at the bureaucratic level, the VA has been beat up a lot, but that, mm -hmm. I think that has to do with these big cities and, and what's going on in DC. And I know there's a lot of well-meaning people, but these are, you know, hundreds of thousands of people working there. Yeah. I think the boots on the ground people around rural Colorado, I don't think there's here under bureaucratic stuff. And I know that there's some legislation in place where if it takes too long to go through the VA process, they might be able to access some other types of medical supply to make sure that they can try to, if the wait's too long in yes. the VA clinics, but shutting down clinics in the Cortez area in Montezuma and down even in Pueblo. I mean, you know, luckily the Alamosas and the Pueblos and the Grand Junctions, they have some pretty solid mm -hmm. healthcare centers, but when, you know, there's hundreds of other communities that, that are, people are driving over an hour or two. Uh, and then you put the, you know, whether it's the home of the heroes here or everywhere else like this, we have a very high population uh, percentage of, of veterans, uh, not only down here, but obviously, you know, the Fruta area and the Grand Junction area yes. as well. And they need, everyone needs to be looked after, especially those that have truly served their country with, you know, in the line of fire. And so I would love to see um, those clinics remain open and try to figure out how to do that. Um, and that's some of my conversation about there's so many aspects of this healthcare system, which is challenging. And my view is I want to focus on the rural aspects of that, yeah. civilian and military, whatever it is. And there's so many things going on in the world of education. I want to focus specifically on those that are characteristically for the rural aspects of okay. education. Because there's just, we can't, you can just get, you can get sucked into a 50-year conversation and nothing gets done. And every day that goes by, the citizens of CD3 
um, are hurting. And so I really, you know, and Republicans get sick as well. And it's building these coalitions with uh, Republican representatives from Nebraska and Wyoming and Utah, New Mexico that are out here in the West as well as in Appalachia and try to figure out it, it really is rural versus urban. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's happened in the parties, which I can talk about a little bit. Um, it's less about them and, you know, DNR. It's really about the rural versus urban. And the Democratic Party has done a horrible job over the past 30 years and focusing on on rural America. Yeah, and that's kind of the story of our life with Action 22 right now. <laughs> yeah, no, and thank you all for what yes. you guys are doing. We don't care if you're Democrat or Republican. We're rural. That's all we yeah. care yeah. about. Um, and that's a hard, that's a hard line to, we didn't pick the easy battle on that. Um, you know, not the party. Um, but just, um, so, you know, collectively action 22, um, their median household income is 47,000 as of 2020. Um, and they're, um, of the 10 poorest counties, um, in Colorado, nine of them are in action 22's footprint. And it's it is that piece where it's really hard to conceptualize when you're living, you know, when you're working in other states or D.C., um, what uh, geographically the challenges are as an added layer to poor and rural and all of those things. Um, And education. Yeah, I I love that you say that it is more of a state issue than it is um, other side. But the. But uh, one of the things that's a really big and it's a nationwide issue is energy. And we end up having a conversation every single yeah. day in our office about energy and energy development and transmission and infrastructure and what energy and when and how and where. Um, so I'm sure you're, I'm not the first person to bring this up to you. Yeah. No, no, no. And I appreciate that. And, you know, that's the conversation I had with the Club 20 and the policy committee. The, you know, there's a couple um, – assumptions that, that I'm trying to get off there and which is that I'm not a Denver Democrat. I'm not in a Washington DC Democrat. You know, I've had this conversation a lot. I'm, I'm into numbers and there's a, there's a certain amount of energy demand and there's a certain amount of energy supply. And just because you wish that every single thing could be done from solar power uh, or wind, which are all great. And I'm glad that we're invested in those things. The, the math says you can't do it. And so we need to figure out how to do all of the above. And that's the main thing. And so a couple of things I've said from day one, I'm never going to disparage anyone any family, male or male or female, who's working in the energy, the traditional energy production industry, it's one of the biggest mistakes. Not just the Democrats have made, but a lot of people uh, in the big cities um, have made. And I'm pretty sure some of those Democratic legislatures constituents probably use five times as much energy as the, as the men and the women pulling out of the ground. And I think that, you know, it's a lot of people believe you go to the grocery store and that's where the food's made, <laughs> right? And the water's made in the tap, mm-hmm. right? And, and the gas just comes out of the gas pump. Um, and I think a lot of people just completely um, lack the ability to realize that. And I've said this not just during this campaign my whole life, which is that if, an, if a barrel of oil is going to be produced, it's much better to be produced in the United States mm-hmm. than it is you know, getting us oil from Saudi Arabia, which President Biden had to go to and pretty much you know, kind of check in with them as at the same time he was shutting down some things that should not have been shut down. Mm-hmm. And we're getting, we're getting oil from Iran and Venezuela. And it's not like we're getting solar power from Denmark, like right. I mean, we're getting yeah. right. we're getting pretty much the same stuff. And the oil, the energy, the rules that we have here, the labor rules we have here, and the environmental rules we have here are a hell of a lot better, yeah, than than what they are overseas. Let alone the transportation thing. So we need to do that. Um, you know, getting to uh, the natural gas conversation production, which is pretty much CD 3s sweet spot. Yes, more than coal, obviously, more than oil is this natural gas. 
And of all these old traditional forms of energy, natural gas is by far and away the best place that we should tr- – that's where we kind of need to hold for that 5, 10, 15, 20 years until we figure out realistically where we can start making the numbers add up before we get into all the great stuff that can come from hydro um, and and solar uh, and and carbon capture and, and, and geothermal and the rest of all that stuff. We need all of the above. We have to figure this how to do it. Um, and, and that's something that's really, really important to figure out how to do. Well, we appreciate that. And if you want to go back on, <laughs> well, what do you? Did I no, scare you? No, 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 no. no, no, no. We, um, I just put up the Sarah rant on um, natural gas, and when you haven't seen it yet, you yeah. haven't seen my no. rant. Um, but what you just said, I'm about to fall out of my chair. You, that is so exactly what we've been talking about, and um, not to get into the the polit, you know, the party politic weeds on this at all, but. Um, I've got to ask you, how did you arrive at this position that you just that you just laid out? Well, I mean, you know, I, I like to follow things um, prior to getting involved in, in in this political conversation. You know, I spent eight years on my local city council. That was elected community service, a lot of land use codes and right. some other things like that. But and again, I've been to forty or fifty countries for work and did business in our forty or fifty, so I have a pretty good grasp of kind of how the world works, so to speak. But uh, again, is you know, and I've I've been involved in a lot of great green energy transformation stuff and supporting that and stuff like that. But we have to look at the math and, and what's really important. And so, um, I you know, it's a little weird because I accepted to come to you know I asked Bobart to debate five. I wanted five debates against her, um, and I wanted to have a town hall. And I want I think that chances to have just the normal citizens ask questions that I think is really important. And she accepted club 20 and I got, when I told him I was going to come to club 20, they kept on asking me like, you know, you're the first Democrat that's gone. And I'm like, I didn't know that you had an option to blow off one of the most important organizations uh, in the district. I didn't realize you have that. Even if I did, I wouldn't take it because I need to get in there and let people know. And I need to get over this, this perception of that. But you know, everything I said now is exactly what I said during the primary. Because, A, I believe it. The reason this was easy for me to get into the race, even though that it comes with a lot of other consequences, is that I'm a moderate, uh, uh, passionate about pragmatic, problem-solving, building consensus. And that's a, it might sound a little naive. That's truly who I am. And that's truly what I think this district is lacking, especially with our current representative. Uh, they want someone to kind of focus on their families and their kids and their grandkids and the businesses. And so I knew that um, whatever I said, every letter I wrote, every verb, uh, vowel I mentioned in the primary would, would have been hold, held against me later on in, in the general. And so, and A, I just believe in speaking the truth and I believe in consistency. You know, when the facts change, I change and I've, I've learned and I get wisdom and I'm always seeking to learn. But I, this is what I told of the Democratic primary. I'm pro-energy. I'm a moderate. We need to figure out how to do this. I talked about if we're going to get gas out of... If there's going to be gas produced, it needs to be produced in the United States. I know that we have some of the cleanest coal, um, like physically, that's coming out of uh, out of Moffat and stuff like that. And yeah. so I appreciate coal. Those coal plants are being shut down, and they are here. Which, if we're going to be doing from coal to natural gas, that's a good transition in my mind. It needs to be yeah. done respectfully. But if we're just if the if that coal production is just going to be moving to Wyoming or or Utah or New Mexico, well, what good is that? A, we probably have better regulations here than yeah. the, than our other neighboring states. Uh, and if there's money going to be produced, and we're using it, I think we need to be realistic about that. So, uh, you know, the the holy grail is obviously locally produced, uh, you know, carbon free energy production. 
but it's going to take some time to get there. Yeah. Um, and so I'm, I don't think I've changed my tune since, you know, I was a young person as soon as you start looking at it. I don't know. I appreciate the aspirational aspects of it. I think it's important for us to remain aspirational. But also then the day, I think everyone in Congress has about 175 days a year to be there. And the vast majority of those 175 days, I want to be working on stuff to get things done. And I've told people for like 10 years, if there was a get stuff done party, I'd be in the get stuff done yeah, party. Yeah. <laughs> but the get stuff done party is not doing very well right now. Well, and, and you said something that I don't think anybody that's running for office has said on our show, maybe one or two, but um, you're willing to work across the aisle for common sense solutions for the district. You'd be surprised that nobody says that right now. Really? Well, they're not brave Republican. enough. They're not. Well, brave I mean, listen, I, I can't. You know, th- there are fewer Democrats than Republicans, and you know, so the district here is about twenty five percent Democrat, thirty one Republican, and forty three percent unaffiliated. Mm-hmm. And listen, I was unaffiliated to December twenty seventh. I registered to be Democrat on on December twenty seventh. Uh, as I started to explore this option of running, I have a couple core democratic values, mostly on kind of the libertarian aspects of I want the government out of my bedroom and uh, who I who people marry and everything else like yeah. that. But at the end of the day, uh, both parties were, were kind of driving me crazy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the urban one of the problems I think we have in our politics now is that the rural America is almost monopolized by the Republican Party in uh, the urban areas are pretty much monopolized by the Democratic Party. And when you have a monopoly, you don't get the best version of the competition. And so the best version of the Democratic Party is not showing up in our big cities. And the best version of the Republican Party is not showing up in rural America. Uh, And it's because they have an 80 or 90 percent kind of say in that conversation. And so I'm running to uh, represent our district with a lot more pride and understanding the difference between right and wrong, which I don't think Representative Bobart does. Uh, but I also want to make a case that rural America needs to be fought over by yeah. as, as many parties as are out there. Yeah, this, especially now that more people are moving to rural America. Yeah. The, the numbers are going up and people are getting out of cities. I mean, we, we saw what happened in California and New York. They're just they're leaving and they're going to where nobody will bug them and they can kind of live their life. Um, I know we have to get you out of here pretty quick. So what's uh, some last thoughts you'd like to share with us? No, I just thank you guys for what you're doing. I think it's really, really important. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm part of this bipartisan pro-normal coalition I'm building. I need about 10% of our prior voters. I thought back in October, November, that if someone does run against her, they could probably get about 30 or 40% of the vote. I had lunch with Don Corum halfway through the primary. I said, Don, it's a noble effort. Uh, to run against your own party, especially what's going on now. I have a huge amount of respect for Liz Cheney as well. Um, and I said, I just don't think that you're going to be able to get 51% of the of the Republican vote. I think you can get 30 to 40%. He got 36%. Mm-hmm. And when I talk, I said, listen, if, if you win, it won't be good for me, but it'll be great for the country. If you get 5% of the vote uh, in the primary, it's not good for the country and it's horrible for me. Um, but if you can get that 30 to 40% of, of kind of the rational Republican, those that want people to focus on their district, uh, I think I can build a coalition with some amount of those people to get enough people to send this district in a much better position and have someone that understands the difference between right and wrong. And again, who do you want negotiating in those committee meetings and in those subcommittee meetings on behalf of your family, your grandkids, your kids, your business, and your community. And I think I'm the best person for that job in this thing. Um, And I'm just trying to get that message out that there are some labels that both parties have that are unfair. And there are some labels that both parties have that are are fair. And I'm just trying to get let people know I'm not a Denver Democrat and I'm not a Washington, D.C. Democrat. And the only way I'm going to hold the seat when I win is by making sure everyone's looked after. 
And if somebody wants to find out more about you, where do they go? Uh, Adam for Colorado.com. And uh, we get back to everyone within 24 hours. So 970-710-3090. 970-710-3090 is a cell phone for me. And Adam at Adam for Colorado.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, I was really excited to hear um, that all of that. <sighs> Disclaimers. Disclaimer. There, here's my favorite thing to say at the end of these. Action 22 does not support or endorse a candidate during an election season, but what we do is offer a platform for any Action 22 running for office to come on and talk about their campaign and why they're running. So we appreciate any and all candidates. um, I can't talk right now. Any and all candidates, please email me at show at action22.org. Again, show at action22.org. And come on the show and tell us why you're running, what you care about, and the issues, and why people should vote for you, and we'll be here for you. We have lots of interesting things coming up. Um, by the time you hear this, you will the, uh, the state fair stuff will have passed. But um, I hope that uh, all of you um, who are listening at some point during the next two weeks will take advantage of all the really great things with the Colorado State Fair. Um, we're going to be doing a meeting of the mayors um, after Labor Day that we're going to talk about uh, several issues that uh, are particular for mayors um, that are part of the Action 22 footprint. Um I'm going to be, I don't know if I've announced this yet, but um, I'm going to be moderating the gubernatorial debates that are happening in Pueblo on the 28th of September. Those are um, hosted and um, promoted by the um, Greater Pueblo Chamber and the Chieftain. They've worked really hard to make sure that that happens um, for everybody. But prior to that, on the 6th and 7th or the 7th and 8th um, are the debates in Pueblo. Um, so we hope that you guys can tune in for some of that. And then, of course, our Action 22 annual meeting will be the 21st and the 22nd of October. If you are not yet a member of Action 22, What's the holdup? You're involved. You're with part of your community. Please join. Please join. We're, we, we need you. We need your voice. We need to make, um, as Adam just laid out, uh, the voice of rural Colorado stronger, and we need you to do that. So um, go to our website um, or email us at show at action22.org. We'll put Micah in touch with you, and he'll get you signed up. So um, Chad Vorthman, I hope that the next I know you're listening, and I know that the next time I see you, um, you're going to have a mustache. I get it. But really, I saw Garen with one um, on Facebook post. I don't even know what to say to you about this anymore. <laughs> Just knock it off. All right. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. This episode of Making Action Happen is sponsored by Action 22's amazing energy leaders, XL Energy, Colorado Rural Electric Association, Colorado Oil and Gas Association, Gil Romero and the Capital Success Group, Black Hills Energy, Nextera Energy, San Isabel Electric Association, Outshine Energy, Colorado Solar and Storage Association, Tri-State and 174 Power Global. Action 22 is a nonpartisan, membership-driven organization which serves as a voice for action on public policy for 22 southern Colorado counties on the state and federal level. We focus on how issues relating to Colorado legislation, local government affairs, health care, education, and natural resources intersect for the economic health of our region. If you're a leader in your community and are considering joining Action 22, you can get more information by emailing show at action22.org or visit our website at action22.org.
Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, for another edition of the show on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.